Amen. Well, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 17. We're going to read through chapter 13, verse 10 today. And I'd also ask you to bookmark Daniel. We're going to be turning to the book of Daniel quite often today. So it would be helpful for time's sake if you had that already bookmarked. But the question that we're going to address today is a follow-up from last week's question that we answered. And that question was, what is the individual's relationship to the law of God? And we came to a conclusion, which I'll review in just a moment. But today we're going to be looking at a different question. What is the Christian's relationship to the public square and to the government? And so for that, let's read Romans 12, 17 and following. Follow along with me. Starting at Romans 12, 17, it says, never paying back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, being at peace with all men, never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists that authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of that authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword in vain. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of that wrath, but also because of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not work evil against a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And that right there is the conclusion that we came to in our sermon last week, that love is the fulfillment of the law. And the law is the standard by which all people, believer or not, will be held accountable. Now, We know that it's impossible to fulfill that law apart from the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what we came to the conclusion last week. The gospel is necessary. (laughs) Jesus Christ is the only one who has fulfilled the law. And as far as the function of God's law, we saw that it acts like a tutor in, uh, that was very similar to the tutor in Greco-Roman society in that it does two things. Number one, the law acts as a strict disciplinarian. And number two, it guides the individual to Christ. And guides the individual to Christ. And that's where we are all meant to be, uh, is in Christ. Of course, we know there's a problem. Not all desire to be there. Not all desire to submit to the law of God. 
people are rebellious to the law of God. But in God's gracious mercy, he's allowed for some to be saved. And the Christian, once he has been saved or she has been saved, is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, which we established last time, allows that person to then be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In other words, a Christian can walk in accordance with the law of God by now being able to fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. And today we're going to apply that knowledge into the public sphere as well as our relationship to the government. Now this question, what is the Christian's relationship to the public square and what is the Christian's relationship to the government is one of the most relevant questions you could ask yourself today. I think we all intuitively know that based on what's occurred over the last three years. Western society at large is decidedly post-Christian. Government schools have been teaching a staunchly anti-God worldview for decades. These seeds will produce anti-God fruit in society for decades. Western nations like America are in the midst of reaping what we have sown. As society continually removes God and his holy law from the public square, government will persistently step in to fill the space that God has been evicted from. The government will likely continue to act in a manner of overreach as it continues to grow in power and influence over society. Because many of those who inhabit the halls of power are themselves sinners and are in rebellion towards God's holy law. Now, historically speaking, the government has always, without question, been the primary antagonist of God's people and the most destructive antagonist of the church of Jesus Christ. Our adversary, Satan, has always sought to occupy the highest seats in the halls of power. And this is certainly true in our day and age. So this question that we're going to answer today is one of the most relevant questions you could possibly ask yourself. We must know what the scriptures teach in consideration of the relationship between church and state. Here's what it teaches just by way of summary. We are to live peaceably by walking by the spirit, by fulfilling the law's demands through love. And so I provided a three-point outline for today that should be up on the screen. Number one, we're to live peaceably within the public square. And that's what Paul describes in, chapters, in chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. Next, we're to live peaceably towards the governing authorities. And finally, we are to live peaceably in our civic duty. And so let's look at our section today, our text for today. And let me set the context before we get into the exposition of verse 19. Remember, chapter 12 is the, is the great hinge point in the book of Romans. Paul says in verses 1 through 2, look at, look at those verses with me. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. This is describing the, the manner of life by which a Christian is to now live. We are to live a life that is one of worship. We are to live a life that actively pursues a transformation of our mind so that we might know what the will of God is in every situation. 
For this is how we are to worship God, by doing his will. In verses 3 through 16, we see exhortations for the church. And we can think of this just as a way of helping us collect our thoughts. We can think of verses 3 through 16 as exhortations for the church when we are gathered, when we're together, whether that be on a setting like today or whether that be out in public or in the home. This is how we are to treat one another, in other words, in verses 3 through 16. Paul describes what the will of God looks like amongst the family of God in the sphere of the church where the Lord exercises his special grace amongst his children. And the plural pronouns that Paul uses identify this for us in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, he says, I say to each one among you. In verse 4, he says, for just as we. And then in verse 5, he just explicitly refers to the church. He says in verse 5, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So again, verses 3 through 16 are instructions by way of exhortation for you and I as it pertains to when we are gathered. But then, starting in verse 17, he makes a transition. Notice when he says in verse 17a, never paying back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. These are people outside of the church. And thus, Paul makes a transition from giving us explicit instruction for how we are to act when we're gathered to how we are to act now when we're scattered, when we disperse from our gathering. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. But it's important that I set the context for you because so often people start at chapter 13 and they jump right into the exhortation concerning the government. But as we're going to see, what is said in verses 17 through 21 really set the rule for how we are to act towards government. And so we need to make sure that we read our Bible in context. We need to make sure that we read our Bible in context. What is the governing rule? Look at verse 21 for just a moment. It's summed up with that. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is the rule. That is the basic idea. We are to overcome evil with good. And the way that this is done is described in verses 17 through 19. So let's read verses 17 through 19a. Never paying back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good, or some translations say doing what is honorable in the sight of all men. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, being at peace with all men, never taking your own revenge, beloved, instead leave room for the wrath of God. Now again, we need to define first and foremost what good and evil is. How are we to understand what good and evil are? We live in a relativistic culture where good is whatever you think it is, where evil is whatever you think it is. But the question is, is that what the Bible says? The question, the answer to that question is emphatically no. Good is not up for us to define. It is up to the one who is good to define it. And he has defined it. How, where has he defined it? In his law. He's defined it in the law of God, expressed in the Ten Commandments, and he's defined it in the law of Christ loving God and loving neighbor. And that is the standard we are to use when we are considering what is evil and what is good. Good, here's a definition for you, is that which conforms to God. Good is that which conforms to God. Remember, the, the biblical axiom that we put down, the self-evident truth that the Bible pushes forward in the Old Testament in particular, 
is that the law exists because God exists. The Ten Commandments are just a writing down of or a codification of God's moral nature. So good is that which conforms to God. And evil is that which conforms to what is not God. The exact opposite. (laughs) So those are just some definitions. Again, these are not relative ideas. They are absolute. God defines them for us. We do not have the liberty to define them at all. So looking at verse 17b then, and verse 18, let's get into the imperatives, the instruction for us. Notice, as the church goes out from being gathered to being scattered in the public square, we have five imperatives in verses 17 through 19a. Two negatives and three positives. Let's start with the negatives since that's what Paul starts with. He says, never paying back evil for evil to anyone. You guys know what that word never means. It means the same thing in the Greek as it does in English. It means absolutely never at one point are we to ever do anything that is opposite than what this commandment is saying. And I love how he balances it out. He says never as the first word. And the last two words are to anyone. Comprehensive. Blanket statement. Christians are never to pay back evil for evil. To anyone. And the second negative absolute imperative is found towards the end of 19a. He uses the same word again right there in the beginning. He says, never taking your own revenge. So blanket statement, general application. We are never to do evil to anybody, particularly when it comes to vengeance. You see, we are called to represent Jesus Christ in the public square. We are called to be light and salt in the midst of the kingdom of darkness. Those who we looked at in Psalm 94, who are described as wicked, arrogant, proud, who have a small view of God, who think they won't be held accountable to his law, they will hate us when we bring God's law to bear on their life. Whether we do it gently or forcefully, Either way, they will hate you. They will hate me. But that doesn't give us license to treat them however we want. That doesn't give us license to to get them back. No, Paul says never pay back evil for evil. You know, they're going to do evil against you. They're going to do evil against me. We still cannot treat them as they treat us. That is the command. That is the absolute command all-encompassing command. We are never to take our own revenge when someone slanders us, when someone lies about you, when someone steals from you. We are never, ever to fight evil with evil. So those are the two negative imperatives. What about the positives? Well, let's look at the three positive imperatives. He says... In verse 17, the second half, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. If he starts the verse with the word never, well, then it's implicit that the positive could be started this way. Always respecting what is good. I know in the ESV and other translations, 
It says, doing what is honorable in the sight of all men. So what is Paul getting at here? What are we always to be respecting? How are we always to be doing what is honorable in the sight of all men? Well, notice the the qualifying term there, respecting not everything. We don't respect everything. We certainly don't respect evil. We certainly don't respect that which God hates. And make no mistake about it. Proverbs 6 tells us God hates evil. We are to respect, look at your Bible. What is what? What is, what is right? What is good? What is good is that which conforms to God. Now, most people in life, most unregenerate people are going to want to live in a society that is governed by law and order. What I mean by that is this. Most people are going to respect laws that prohibit murder. Most people are going to respect laws that prohibit the plundering of private property. Although that's quickly changing in our culture today. (laughs) The point is this, that we are to live godly lives and to stand up for righteousness. We are to promote that which God would promote. You see, that's how we are to act in the public square. We are to respect what God would respect. This is what he's telling us. Now, that word uh, respecting or, or honorable is an interesting word in that it's used in this particular way. It basically means showing necessary forethought. Uh, it's a compound word that, that means uh, before think. And I think this is very instructive for us as Christians. If we're going to be prepared to face evil in the public square, we need to th- use our mind to think through how people might react. You ever think about that? You don't want to be reactive because you and I, brother, we, we're probably going to get angry when people start slandering us. We're probably going to be upset when people belittle us and demean us and cut you little Christian, get out of here. It's what they did to our brothers and sisters in the first century. So we need to think about how we are going to act if we are to respect that which God respects. You understand? We need to use our mind to think through scenarios. We need to make sure that we have deep-seated convictions about that which is good. Deep-seated convictions about honoring what God honors, about loving what God loves. Everything that is true, righteous, beautiful, honorable, those are the things that we are to uphold in the public square. So that's the first positive imperative. The next one says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, in verse 18, always silent, being at peace with all men. Now, this one is a much more loaded term, being at peace. First, let's think about who wrote this. Paul, the apostle. He is the one who who spoke this message, and it was recorded by a recorder. And he spoke this message as the person that he is, meaning he's a Hebrew. He is a Jew. He describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. Why is that significant? Because the word peace to the Hebrew is going to mean shalom. And that's a very theologically packed term. It basically means that uh, the Messiah was going to come to the earth and restore all that had been broken down or lost in the fall. There's going to be peace between God and man and peace between man and man. And the effects of the curse would be lifted. And this is a, a future promise primarily because of the reality of the fall. And so it's likely Paul thought this. Just for a moment, turn to Isaiah chapter 32 with me for you guys to see this. 
the idea of shalom to the Hebrew is, um, can't be overstated in terms of its importance. Chapter 32 of the book of Isaiah, let's just look at verses 15 and following, just to get a picture of what this would look like. It would be a, it would be a, a reality of untold blessing. Verse 15, chapter 32 of Isaiah says, until the spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful orchard and the fruitful orchard is counted as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will live in the fruitful orchard and the work of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness, quietness and security forever. Then my people will live in a peaceful abode and in secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places. And it will hail when the forest comes down and the city will be utterly laid low. How blessed will you be, you who sow beside all waters, who let out freely the oxen and the donkey. In verse one of that same chapter, it says, behold, a king will reign righteously and princes will rule justly. And this idea is just a brief snapshot of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit's Spirit, which will come back and restore this idea of shalom peace, where righteousness will reign, where justice will be executed, where peace between neighbor will be a reality. And so that's the first uh, idea loaded in this term peace as we turn back to Romans chapter 12. The other idea that we have to take into account is how Jesus taught Matthew 5, 9. You guys can turn there with me. The Sermon on the Mount. Our Lord has called us to be peacemakers. Brother uh, Josh, Pastor Josh does a great teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. If you haven't heard it, um, maybe he can get that to you. I know I'm putting him on the spot, but it's a very good teaching because it shows us our identity in Christ and what we are to be doing with our time. And in verse nine of chapter five of Matthew, the Lord says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. We are called very explicitly to be those who make peace, those who spread this concept of shalom. We can't do that unless we've first been made right with God, unless we first have peace with God. Once we have peace with God, now we are actually able to begin to be at peace with one another and with those in the public square. You can turn back to Romans 12. The final positive imperative here that we see is at the end of verse 19. He says, instead of seeking your own revenge, leave room for the wrath of God. We are to leave room for the wrath of God. Why? Because it belongs to him. That's why we read Psalm 94 earlier today. Wrath belongs to God. It is his and his alone. Again, we are never to take revenge. We can't handle that. Nor are we in a position to do that. Only God is holy. Only God is righteous. Only God is good. And so wrath belongs to him. And the apostle Paul cites Deuteronomy chapter 32, specifically verses 40 through 41 as his proof text for this. Anytime a New Testament writer quotes an Old Testament text, he doesn't quote it in isolation. He brings with it the entire context. It's very important to understand. The context of Deuteronomy 32 is is an eschatological context. It's a future context. 
And basically what God is saying in that is that not only are his own people going to turn their back on him, but he's going to use other nations to enact judgment on those people who turn their backs on him. And then because the hearts of those other nations are not right towards God, God is then going to enact judgment on them so that God is left as the only holy one so that God is the only vindicator of his people so that God is the only one who executes wrath on those who violate his holiness. That's the idea. And that's why the apostle Paul cites Deuteronomy 32 verses 40 through 41. And how does this relate now to the rest of our section today? Like this, the normal means by which God will execute his wrath in the public sphere is through government. It's through government. Government, as we're going to see, is divinely ordained of God to restrain evil in the public sphere. That's why we had to read this section first. Not only are we to never pay back evil for evil, not only are are we to never take our own revenge, but we are to understand that God is the one who is going to do those things through the means which he has instated. And he's done that primarily through government. The implications of this section for the church are this. The church is not to seek self-vindication or violent execution of vengeance, but she is to seek to overcome the evil in society through implementing these imperatives that we've just gone over. And again, it is stated in verse 21, the church is never to be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The apostle Paul, again, cites another text in verse 20. He says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Paul's citing Proverbs 25 verses 21 through 22. But this is really an extension of what he's already been saying. Look at verse 14 in chapter 12. We're to bless those who persecute us. We're to bless and not to curse. This is really just emphasizing verse nine in chapter 12, where he says, let love be without hypocrisy by abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. That's what we are to do. Love conquers by exercising love. Love overcomes evil, not by the use of evil, but only through the use of love. So let's move on to discussion concerning the Christian's relationship to the government now that we understand the basic principle laid down. Government, again, is God's ordained means to restrain evil in the public sphere. Let's go ahead and read verse one. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been appointed by God. Now, before I get to walking us through this section, I want to just give you some basic observations that I think are very important for our day and time. For those of you who might not be up to date on what the conversation is in the Christian realm, particularly in universities and things of that nature, the idea of a Christian government is being actively discussed quite often, particularly in the, in the uh, discussions about eschatology. Um, and so without going too deeply into that, it's very important for us to know what Paul is saying and what he's not saying here. And so what he is not doing is he is not providing a suggestion 
for what the best type of government might be. Nor does he mention the church itself becoming the governing authority over all men. He doesn't do that. What he does do is he mentions that government is ordained of God, that it is subject to God, that it is to keep law and order in society by restraining evil and rewarding good, and that how all humans are to arrange themselves in reference to its authority. You know, much of, much of life is really just learning about how to operate in different spheres of authority. When you go to your job, depending on your title there, you are in a particular role. You need to learn how to arrange yourself in that authority. If you're the boss, if you're an employee, what have you. It's the same thing when you walk out the doors. You're no longer under that sphere of authority. You're walking into a new sphere of authority. And when we're in the public square, we have to understand our place. We have to understand how God has arranged his authority. So that's the first thing that I want to say before we get into this. The next thing is the historical context, and it's, it's really remarkable. Paul wrote Romans in 57 AD, and the ruling Roman emperor during that time was Nero. Nero was emperor in 54 AD, and he was installed at 13 years old. He was very unstable. He was mentally deranged. And at first, he was basically controlled by his mother and two of his mentors, and he eventually had them all murdered. Historians tell us that he could be extremely cruel and was known for his immoral excesses. But really, perhaps what he's most well known for is the persecution of Christians because he successfully blamed Christians for the great fire of Rome in 64 AD. And this initiated the greatest persecution of Christians in the first century. Our brothers and sisters during that time had to live under tremendous hardship. Nero would have Christians used as entertainment in the gladiatorial games. He would literally throw them in the, um, the stadium just to be fed to the wild beasts that were let loose in the stadium. He would literally line the highways with crucified victims, many of which were Christians. And perhaps most disturbingly, he would have those crucified victims lit on fire at his personal parties to light the night air. This is the person who happened to be in the seat of power when Paul wrote this. He said, let every person, literally let every soul be in subjection to the governing authorities. You know what that meant in this governmental structure in this particular time? That meant you submit to Nero. Americans really don't like that. Now, let's look at verse one again, just to pull out the command and the principle. Again, Paul introduces the section on the government as he continues his discussion concerning the scattered church and its conduct in the public square as they endure hardship. And he's just given the command to never avenge oneself, but to always overcome evil with good. The command here is very straightforward. And in other words, it's to demonstrate our love for God and our neighbor through submission. This is every single person, not just Christians. We are to understand that we are in a particular level as it pertains to authority in the public square. We are under the governing authorities who are under God. Now, let me just make this note as well. There are three spheres of authority that you and I really need to have in our mind as we continue our discussion. The first sphere that I'll mention is the sphere of the family. God has delegated authority in the family. He's done it very clearly, and he's outlined it in his word. The next fear is the church. 
God has delegated authority in the church, and he's done it very clearly, and it's found in his word. And the third sphere, the one that we're looking at today, is God has delegated legitimate authority to government. It's very clear, and it's outlined in his word. So that word governing authorities is the same word that our Lord used in Matthew 10, 1, when he delegated authority to his disciples, when he sent them out on, a, on their first missionary journey, they had authority over spirits. They could cast out demons. He delegated that authority to them to have power over the spiritual forces of darkness. So that's what we are to keep in our mind as we continue to move forward and look at the second sentence in verse one. He says, for, there's the principle, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist have been appointed by God. It's important to understand this, that authority exists because God exists. Authority exists because God exists. Authority is entirely dependent, just like the law, upon the reality of God. He has apportioned it and structured it in accordance with his own nature and desire for his own glory. The main word that Paul uses in this section to describe this ordering or arranging of authority is the word tasso. And it means to draw up in order, to arrange, to place in position. It was commonly used in ancient military language for designating, appointing a specific status, or arranging in a deliberate fixed order. And sometimes verse 1 is, translates that word, in the ESV it translates that word instituted. In the NASB it translates that word established. And in the King James Version, it translates that word ordained. That is the word that is primarily used here. And subjection is just a variant of that word. And there's many other variants of that word. But authority existing because God exists is the thing that I want you to remember because of this. It's important for governmental leaders to remember that they are not the ones who originate their authority. God is the one who gives them authority. God is the one who grants them legitimate authority. That's important for you and I to remember. It's legitimate, whether or not we love it or not. It is legitimate. It is legitimate. And it's arranged according to his good pleasure. He is King Jesus. Now, let's look at Daniel, because I told you we were going to go there. And I want you to see this explicitly, how God is the one who is the apportioner of authority. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. The principle that we're talking about, that authority exists because God exists and he apportions it how he wants to, is found in verse 21 of chapter 2. And it says, he, referring to God, changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Here's the example. Look at verses 38 through 44. Daniel is interpreting a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked, wicked king, had. And it says in verse 38, I'll start at verse 37 rather. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men inhibit, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, 
He has given them into your hand and has made you rule with power over them all. You are the head of gold. But after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule with power over all the earth. Authority exists because God exists and he doles it out according to his own good pleasure and according to his own sovereign will as the only king over all creation. Go to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10 provides us with another example of God apportioning authority to another wicked God-hating king. Isaiah chapter 10, starting at verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation. He's referring to his people Israel there. I send it against a godless nation and command it against the people of my fury to capture spoil and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But it does not intend to act in this way and it does not think in its heart in this way. Now that it is referring to Assyria now. Rather, what is in its heart is to destroy and to cut off many nations. And skipping down to verse 12, it says, so it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion, and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his eyes, which are raised high. We can turn back to Romans now. And I wanted to show you that principle illustrated in the Old Testament, that God's ordered arrangement of authority is according to his own desire. And that he will give wicked pagan kings the right to rule. He will do it. It doesn't happen by chance. There's no such thing as chance as a creative force, as a sovereign dictator. Chance is a mathematical term that describes a possibility. It's not God. God is the only sovereign. And he will use, I'm reminded of a donkey with the false prophet, Balaam. He will use anything that he wants to. For the Bible tells us that our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Now, what is the application for you and I living in America? Because we don't live under a monarchy, thank God. The first question is, what is the governing authority in the United States? It's the Constitution. It's not the executive office. It's not the judicial branch. <clears throat> and it's not the legislative branch. The branches of our government are required to operate within the constraints of their jurisdiction they are still, although they have legitimate authority required by God to legislate and to rule according to his ordained purposes. And they are to do it according to his law. And we're going to define that a little bit more later on today. But as you saw with the king of Assyria, his heart was not right before God. He was thinking, I'm going to crush all the nations around me and I'm going to belittle their gods. That's why God rightly and justly could exact vengeance upon him. So when, whenever any head or branch of government acts outside of their jurisdiction, they do not have the right or the authority to govern either from the supreme law of our land or from the supreme law of God. 
they have a designated jurisdiction. And we're going to point that out as we move forward to our next sub point in living peaceably towards the governing authorities in verses two through four. And let's look there now. Verses two through four. Therefore, whoever resists that authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of that authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword in vain. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. We'll stop there. This section shows us the God-ordained purpose of government. It is this, stated three times in this section. They are ministers. They are deacons. They are servants of God used for the express purpose of rewarding good as defined by God and punishing evil as defined by God. Look again with me. Look at verse four. For it, referring to the authority, is a minister of God to you for good. Notice, it's to serve us. It's to serve the public square for good purposes. That's its divine ordination of purpose. And again, at the end of that verse, it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. That goes back to the first purpose that I stated earlier. Vengeance is God's and God's alone. And the way that he avenges his holiness in the public square is through government. That's how he does it. Look at verse 2a with me. Therefore, whoever resists that authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Resists, again, using that word tasso. Whoever is anti-tasso, whoever is squared off in in opposition. Uh, This word was used to describe organized resistance, like an army assuming a specific battle array. Whoever has set their heart to be in opposition to the express authority of God will receive the condemnation. Will receive the condemnation. Remember, the civil government, like all authoritative institutions, has legitimate delegated authority because there is no authority except from God. So any person who resists that authority is actually resisting God's authority. That's in actuality what is happening. Now, I know what you are asking. What if <laughs> someone's laughing? What if government's acting unjustly? Don't worry, we'll get there. We'll get there. You guys are being very, very patient. But notice what Paul is saying. And remember who the emperor is. Nero. Talk about injustice. Paul still says it. That resistance leads to condemnation because we are not opposing the person. Remember what I said. The people are not the enemy. They're the mission field. Nero was the mission field. No. We have to remember the divine ordination of this authority in God's creation and its source. To resist government, which is acting legitimately within the bounds of its jurisdiction, is to, according to this verse, to take part in evil. That's what the word of God says. And we will receive the condemnation. Uh, Notice it says, will receive. That's a promise. Take that one to the bank. Whether we receive it now 
or we receive it when we stand before the throne of God, there will be a punishment for that. Whether that is being ashamed before our Lord that we did such a thing as resist him or whether that is meeting the sword, as it says in verse four, that the government has the right to possess. It's a dangerous exercise resisting God's delegated authority. Look at verses three and four now. These are very instructive for us. These are very instructive for us, but they're also very instructive for those who are in government. But first, let's talk about us. Government is God's means by which he restrains evil, and that's really their purpose in society, like I've said. That's what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be punishing evil, rewarding good, as defined by the law of God. That's what they're supposed to be doing. They're not supposed to be getting into the sphere of authority of the church. They're not supposed to be getting into the sphere of authority in the family in terms of relegating those spheres. They have interplay, which I'll get into in just a bit, but they're to stay within the boundaries of their jurisdiction, and that's what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to get vengeance on evildoers in society. That's what it says at the end of verse four. Proverbs 20, verse 26 says this as well. A wise king separates out the wicked and drives the threshing wheel over them. A threshing wheel is a farming tool, common farming tool, where the farmer would actually stand on top of it as a donkey or a beast of burden would drag this tool over corn or wheat or what have you to separate out the chaff so that you had a usable commodity, you had a usable product. The threshing threshing wheel, rather, is what um, God has granted a wise king Uh, the right to use over those who are wicked. It's a very graphic image. So that's, that's what its purpose is, and that's how it helps us. What about them? The government officials, they have to act within the limits of their jurisdiction because they're people just like you and I, and they're going to be held to the law of God. And those people will be uh, severely punished, as we're going to see in just a moment. Proverbs 16, 12 says this, it is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness. That's the strongest possible word that could be used. It is an abomination in the sight of God for a governmental leader to abuse that position of power. For in righteousness, a throne is established. Let's look back at Daniel chapter four to see this in practice. Daniel chapter four, verses 24 through 33. as we look at a king who violated his jurisdiction. King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter four, verses 24 through 33 will be our focus. Again, Nebuchadnezzar's had a a, a scary dream. He's asked Daniel to interpret it for him. Um, And Daniel does that. Starting at verse 24, he says, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the resolution of the most high, which has reached my Lord, the king, that you be driven away from mankind and your place of habitation be with the beast of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with dew of the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the most high is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. And in that, they said to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, 
Your kingdom will endure for you after you. Know that it is heaven that rules with power. Therefore, O king, may my advice seem good to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Notice what he's doing. He's calling this king to repentance. He's bringing the law of God to bear upon this governmental leader. In verse 28, he says, all this reached Nebuchadnezzar, the king. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king answered and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself built as a royal house by the strength of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is said, the kingdom has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your place of habitation will be with the beast of the field and you will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the most high is the, mo- is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. And immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was accomplished. King Nebuchadnezzar violated his jurisdiction. King Nebuchadnezzar thought he was God. And God punished him severely. Now, verse 37 shows us the grace and mercy of God. And I would love to mention it. Let me mention it to you. After King Nebuchadnezzar's time being humiliated, he was brought low. And it says in verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So this is the seriousness with which governmental leaders have to do their job. And if they've forgotten that, it's our job as the light of the world to remind them of that, just like we saw Daniel doing that. This doesn't mean we start um, rallies. This doesn't mean that we begin to um, try to a government takeover. We just are simply called to be Christians, to share the light with people. If you happen to know local officials, state officials, even federal officials, share Jesus Christ with them. Call them to repentance. Um, there's been many pastors who have done this over the past three years. John MacArthur, Josh Boyce, and others have written letters and sent them to their state governors, calling them to repent. And so this is something that we see uh, the leaders in the Christian faith doing, and we should do that as well. We should do that as well. Now, what jurisdiction does civil government have? Go to Deuteronomy chapter five. We're getting closer to that question about what if they're acting unjustly? What jurisdiction has been given by God to civil government? What are they supposed to enforce? We're getting very close to the end here. Deuteronomy chapter five, verses six through 22, we looked at last year or last week rather. And in it, we have the, first and second table of God's law. And I'll just draw your attention to verses 16 through 21. That outlines the second table of God's law. Remember, there's three spheres of authority that we need to be thinking about for this part of our conversation. The family, the church, and the government. Verse 16, honor your father and mother. What sphere of authority does that belong to? The family. The family. The government is not called to instill that in our children. Verse 12, 
I'm sorry, verse 12 was that. Um, look at verses two through 11. I skipped forward. Verses two through 11. That is the first table of the law. Who is that to be regulated and enforced by? That's the church. We are to call people to the worship of God. We are to call people to a life of sanctification. The government's not to do that. The family is not to override the church per se in that particular instance. Now look at verse 17 through 21, 17 through 20 rather. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Neighbor, who's supposed to regulate that? In the public square, most, most certainly the civil government, right? The church isn't to go out and start handcuffing people if they start stealing, right? That's not our job. We don't have the sword to bear. And so the question is, what jurisdiction has God given to civil government? I would put before you those verses right there and all of their implications. That is how we know whether or not the government is acting justly. That is how we know whether or not the government is acting justly. Now, these spheres do um, interact with one another. There's all kinds of situations where the government may need to get involved in a family, if there's sexual abuse, if there's physical abuse, et cetera, et cetera. But those are the designated um, areas of jurisdiction. And our Lord told us to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so the question that many of you are thinking right now, when do we disobey the government? When do we disobey? Can we ever disobey the government? Which is the third subpoint of this second point the extent of Christian subjugation. Look at verse five back in Romans 13. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of that wrath, but also because of conscience. We are called to be in subjection to the government because of the wrath of God that will be executed on all those who practice evil, but also because we know the divine ordination of authority that the government has. Our conscience is very important in this. And so how do we, what qualifications from scripture do we have when disobedience, civil disobedience is okay. Well, Acts 5.29 tells us we must obey God rather than men. And so if we're being asked to sin against the Lord by the government, we disobey. If we're being asked to sin against the Lord by the government, we disobey. Furthermore, are we being asked to violate our own conscience, which is being renewed, big qualifier, which is being renewed by the word of God. Like Paul said in chapter 12, verse two, we must be renewed in our mind. Well, if we're being asked to violate our conscience, then we need to be very careful to make sure that our conscience is being informed accurately before we do practice civil disobedience. Romans fourteen twenty three. but the one who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. That whole chapter is about the conscience. We need to make sure that our convictions are deeply rooted, that we know what King Jesus actually does teach, and that we understand what the jurisdiction of the government actually is. And so that's the answer to the question, when to disobey. Is the government acting within, their, within the constraints of their own jurisdiction? Are they acting in accordance with the righteousness of God in terms of the second table of the law? If they're not doing that, we need to call them to account. If they are legislating laws that reward evil and punish good, then we need to call them to account. We're the only organization in the world that has been given that right. We've been given that right. The question is, are you doing that?
Are you doing that? Are you just going, no, I don't want to talk about politics? Look at your country. Look at your country. We're reaping what we have sown, church. We need to be salt and light in the world. We need to be salt and light in the world. Moving to verses six through seven, as we get close to landing this plane here, we're also to make sure that the extent of our subjugation involves our money and our heart attitudes towards our governmental leaders. Again, Luke 20, 25, the Lord says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Verse six talks about taxes. The verse seven talks, talks about tax and custom. Essentially, all these are referring to in the original language for you and I today in the application are we are to pay federal, state, and local taxes. Why? Look at verse six. For rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing, to the punishment of evil and the rewarding of good. They have devoted themselves. They don't have other jobs. We are to fund the government and we're to do it willingly. And when, when Jesus was, was making that statement, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God, it's not like the Roman government was, was, was using that tax money, those tax revenues for righteous things. They were not. They were not. And yet the Lord still respected the divine ordination of authority to those governmental leaders. And so we're to make sure that the extent of our subjugation to the government also involves our money. And next, in verse 7, our heart attitude. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We are to make sure that we respect the office, that we respect the office. And this is really only possible when we understand how all this works. Because sometimes... If I'm being honest, they're not respectable. But that doesn't matter. I'm to respect the Lord and thereby respect the office and be in submission because of those realities. First Peter chapter 2, verses 16 through 17 says, Act as free people and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brethren, fear God, and honor the king. I don't have time to take you through Daniel, but Daniel always was honoring King Nebuchadnezzar. He called him the Lord of Lords. Daniel was always putting this into practice. And so the final section today is really brief now that we understand the realities that King Jesus is teaching us through the Apostle Paul in this section, verses 8 through 10, how to live peaceably in our civic, civic duty. Verse 8 sums up the principle, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. How is the Christian to act in the public square and towards the government? We are to act in such a way that we do not withhold that which love requires. We do not withhold that which love requires. And this is what we started talking about last week. We are to walk in love. As sons and daughters of the Most High King, we are to conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of his name. With the one another's, we're to execute the word of God as described in it. In the public square, how do we walk in love? It means standing up for holiness. It means standing up for righteousness. It means what verse nine in chapter 12 says, to let love be without hypocrisy by abhorring what is evil and clinging to that which is good. We're not called to have a political takeover, but we are called to preach the gospel. 
We are called to preach the gospel. We're also called to use this gift that we have in America called a voice and a vote. We are to bring the law of God to bear on culture through the gospel proclamation. The gospel proclamation. If we just stand on the sidelines, then understand that the forces of wickedness will have their way in society. Whenever the light vacates, darkness immediately comes in. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Did you catch what he said? Make sure it shines before men. Before men, church. We are to be the most outstanding citizens who practice their Christian beliefs publicly and who are not afraid to voice them publicly. The final text that I'll bring up is Luke 12, 4 through 5 and 8 through 9. Jesus says, but I say to you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the son of man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Do you fear men more than God? In this area of politics, locally, do you fear men more than God? Are you at the school board meetings? Are you voicing your Christian opinions based on truth? Or are you hiding in the relativistic bubble? We're not called to do that. We're called to let our light shine before men. I would encourage you, if, you've, if, you're, if you are actually fearing man more than God, you must repent based on the words of our Lord here. And I would encourage you to show up next Saturday to get equipped to learn how to share your faith in public. Also, are we quick to avenge ourselves? Are we quick to assert our own dominance? Are we in violation of never paying back evil for evil to anyone? Have you been hurt? by a family member? Have you been hurt by someone in the government? Have you been hurt by some sort of policy that's been enacted? Have you been hurt by someone who hates God? Have you had bitterness in your heart towards them? Have you been thinking evil against them? Confess and repent today. Be washed in the blood of the Savior. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been using your mouth to dishonor the president? Have you been using your mouth to dishonor the threefold branches of our government? If you have, confess and repent. God has told us we must honor the king. We must show respect to those who have been placed in that position of authority. We do not want to withhold that which love requires. The good news is this, that King Jesus is willing to forgive us. All we have to do is ask. Let's do that now. Let's pray.